You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Paul Seabright, who is a professor of economics at the University of Toulouse, and also the director of its Institute for Advanced Studies, which is an interdisciplinary think tank, I guess you could describe it as a research center. But also you're the author of The Company of Strangers, and also this other one, which is called The War of the Sexes. And I saw how the the second book really did build on some of the concepts and themes of the first book, but digs much more, I think, into the evolutionary biology side of things. And so maybe I'll start off, Paul, by saying you use this phrase when you describe human beings as the, the shy, murderous ape. And it's not usual that an economist uses a term like that to describe people. Normally, when you ask an economist, what is a person, they'll say something like they're a rational optimizer right, or constrained maximizer or something to that effect. I'm wondering what drew you to biology, what drew you to anthropology, what drew you to these other disciplines that are adjacent to economics? I guess there are two answers to that. One is that I hung around with a lot of biologists and anthropologists and people in my youth. I actually met Richard Dawkins before I graduated. I'd been advised by a tutor in philosophy to read up some sociobiology, which was the stuff that was happening at the time. And he put me in touch with Richard a very long time ago when Richard would have just become famous as the author of The Selfish Gene. And so I was interested in this stuff happening. And I then spent quite a lot of time with anthropologists and so on in my early days as graduate student. And so for me, it was just a natural way of thinking about the world. And I almost felt that I had to put on a special uniform to be an economist, whereas what I was, what I felt comfortable with was just thinking about human beings as this kind of population that you could study pretty much in the nature movies that I watched in a very greedy way. I would watch, you know, David Attenborough sort of loom over the horizon and film an ant's nest and say, you know, it's really curious what's going on here. And I sort of felt that human society is ripe for the same kind of treatment. And for me, it was always, I had to put on a special white coat to be an economist. It wasn't that I had to stop being an economist to do this other stuff. And the other thing was that it was about having kids. I mean, my kids were endlessly curious. We watched lots of these nature documentaries and they always seemed a little bit puzzled that they couldn't quite figure out how their dad, who they knew to be very curious and I hope fun, could be an economist, which all their friends at school would tell them was what their parents were seriously telling them they should do because it was sensible. So a lot of the impulse of the book got out of explaining why economics is not sensible, why it's exciting and fun, and a bit transgressive, actually, that it rather than showing you just the rather high-minded picture of what human societies ought to be. It was. It's also about turning over the anthill and seeing what it really is in, in the blood and the violence and the mess. Well, I think economists buy into the idea of human exceptionalism in a way. And you know, there's a long tradition of this. Certainly, you know, the great chain of being, humans were above all the other animals and all the other primates, certainly. And I think in today's culture, we still have this in the broader culture, this idea of human exceptionalism. And I think part of your work is to motivate it by the desire to both at the one hand can conflate that difference between humans and other animals and say we can study them all using the same tools, but then again to go double down on a human exceptionalism. You have this wonderful little fantasia in one of the books about a committee of primate anthropologists where you, I don't know if you remember this, it was a while ago, but you have a, a gorilla, a chimpanzee, and a bonobo, and they're, and they're essentially observing the human animal, and they observe all of these peculiarities about us. And the ones that you emphasize, you, you don't emphasize, oh, they're they're the rational ones. They're the ones that, that use tools and use math and so forth. Instead, you emphasize certain aspects of our organizational, social, and reproductive strategies. So, so what exactly is the unique human niche? And then maybe you can also comment on you know, this idea of human exceptionalism. Yes, I certainly got interested in the idea that humans occupy a very unusual niche, but not necessarily the one that we should think of as being, you know, the summit of, of natural possibility, but rather we ended up in this very unusual ecological niche, which had all sorts of unexpected consequences. So what's unusual about it is that we essentially 
developed in a way that led human babies to be born substantially premature. Essentially, all human babies are in intensive care for the first few years of their life. You know, you don't have to think that Bambi is a piece of scientific natural history to be struck by the fact that when the deer is born, it drops out of its mother's womb and it's gambling around in the prairie very shortly afterwards. And human beings are not like that. We take a year of intensive care even to stand up which is pretty startling. And what that, we know, all know the reason why that happened. The reason why that happened was that as humans started to walk upright, the need to maintain an upright gait meant that human mothers had to get rid of the babies growing in their wombs while their heads were still small enough to fit through the hole in the pelvis. And so essentially, we very luckily and fortuitously colonized this niche in which we had to give birth very early in the process of the development of the baby. And this meant that would only work if we had a social organization in which there were enough people around to help look after that baby, including not just the biological mother and not just the biological father, but also the aunts and the cousins and the uncles and the rest of the society. And um, I, Sarah Hurdy has this wonderful uh, description at several points. I think it's in Mothers and Others where she says, you know, if you, if you show up in a village almost anywhere in the world where a mother has just given a birth and assuming you're welcomed, one of the first things that will happen is people will hand you the baby to gurgle over. And, you know, we share babies. But if you try going up to a chimp mother that's just given birth and try to borrow her baby in the same way, you'll be very lucky to get away with your life. Other apes don't share their babies. We share them. And so what happened was a, a series of near simultaneous developments in our physiology and lifestyle where because of physiological constraints, we had to give birth to premature babies. And that was only feasible if we had the social organization available to look after them. And of course, that social organization then as a side effect, a very beneficial side effect brought with it the fact that once you've got people who are cooperating to look after babies, they can cooperate to do lots of other stuff. It seems like the defining characteristic of humans, as you mentioned, is that we are trusting. We trust other humans. And from an economist's perspective, this seems almost irrational, at least when you do it with people who are not kin or with people with whom you're not maintaining a very close tit-for-tat form of, of reciprocity. If that's true, then it, first of all, it requires some kind of explanation, right? How, how do we go from kin selection to this trusting relationship that we often have with strangers. And then the other question is, if this is a mismatch, in other words, it's a characteristic that was that evolved in an era where we were surrounded by relatives and, and so forth, then is it something that will evolve away from and become more rational and become more like economists and become less trusting? Game theorists would certainly have a hard time explaining the degree of trust that we have with one another. Yes, that's exactly right. I think you can ask the question about how do we get to trust at two levels? One is, what's the rationale we have for trusting in everyday life? And there, I, I really want to emphasize that we do this so naturally. It's so much a second nature that we forget how extraordinary it is. You know, I mean, if I want to go out into the street and buy some food, I go into a shop and somebody I've never met in my life hands it over to me. If my ancestor of 50,000 years ago had gone up to a complete stranger and asked for some food, he would probably not have got away with his life. So, I think it's really important to emphasize that it's become utterly second nature for us so that we don't, it's not that we have a story we tell ourselves about why we trust people, it's that we do it so naturally that we often have to think about who not to trust. You tell kids, don't go walking in that neighborhood, it's not safe, or you think to yourself, actually, you know, I have to be careful about, you know, that nice person who sent me the email promising to share a million dollars with me is probably not somebody I should trust. I think we're, we've, although it's kind of weird that we do it, we now do it in such a natural way that we forget how weird it is. And then there's the question of how did it happen chronologically? What was the process by which it happened? And there, I think, have forgotten how many unsung heroes of prehistory lost their lives so that it could happen. I mean, there are an awful lot of people who made the first move towards contacting a tribe that they previously had no contact with and who then left no trace in the genetic record because they lost their lives in the attempt. So all we know is that some people did it successfully because we're here to tell the tale. We have no idea what the casualty rate was before it became a more natural and accepted thing to do.
And I think that's one of the places where we have very little way of doing more than making casual conjectures because it seems pretty clear that contacts between geographically separated human communities go back a long way. One plausible conjecture actually is that it had a lot of it had to do without marrying, so that unlike what chimps do, which is basically where adolescent females leave the main paternal group and then move out and eventually find another group to join. What's quite likely is that in humans, we evolved a process by which the adolescent female didn't go out just by herself. She went out with a family group and that helped to make ties possible between the groups. There's actually a, a moment that for me makes, which this isn't science, this is imagination, but at the end of Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, where things have been building up to what you think is going to be the most awful, terrible climax. But I mean, you've seen signs of violence as it goes. And there's this very small group, the father and the, and the son, arrive near the end of their journey and they spot another group. And for a moment, everything is very fraught because you think, my God, they're outnumbered, they're going to get slaughtered. And then you realize that group has an adolescent female. And suddenly, I mean, to the reader, we all know it. We don't have to be told why that's important. We all suddenly feel, oof, that's the best scenario they could have because they then have a shared interest in the mating of the, the successful mating of these two young, young individuals. So I think it's plausible that some of the first human contacts were around and that unlike in the case of, say, chimps, where it's entirely the initiative of the adolescent female, fairly early on in the process, adults got involved. But we don't know that. And you know that's not the kind of thing that fossil evidence can tell us very easily. Well, I think what, what a lot of people find puzzling is the if you know this notion of reciprocity, which appears to be at least partially hardwired that you highlight in the book, it seems like it's not mutation resistant, right? I mean, if we all have this Robert Cialdini writes about it, if somebody gives you something, you feel almost compelled to give something back, right? You know, when we do the trust game, for instance, you know, when people are given some kind of pot and the pot doubles, people feel compelled to to give something back, even though they, they don't have to. I'm always surprised when I read stories about, say, someone who is a prisoner in, you know, in Auschwitz and they give a guard like their watch and that, then they get out of the, the death lane. I mean, it's like, wait, this is like a murderous, <laughs> this is a person who is in the business of like exterminating people. Like, why would that individual feel any compunction to honor a deal like, like that? I mean, you mentioned that trust is kind of the mortar of society. It's not entirely about a fear of punishment, but rather uh, there's this internal sense of obligation. How is this mutation resistant? Why don't the con artists and, and the reneging individuals exploit this kind of weakness in human nature? They do. And what's interesting, I think, is that it seems pretty convincing to me that not only is it not mutation re resistant, but Pure selfishness isn't mutation resistant either. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the evidence seems pretty strong that social preferences in human beings are in what the biologists call balanced polymorphism. That is to say, there isn't a single dominant genotype that has higher fitness than all of the others. What seems to be true is that the fitness of particular genotypes is frequency dependent. So basically, if everybody is trusting, then the returns to being a sociopath are very high. But if everybody's a sociopath, there are actually some significant returns to being trusting. Obviously, if you're the only trusting individual in an entire community of sociopaths, then it's going to be difficult to realize the benefits. But if you can manage to be a small group, altruistic and reciprocal individuals in a community of sociopaths, you can actually do pretty well. You can do a lot better than they can. So I think it's the, and why do I say the evidence for that is strong? I think the, the reason for that is that in almost all of the behavioral studies that I've ever seen, you never find that all of the subjects in the experiment display reciprocity. There's always a proportion who don't. And you never find that everybody's selfish either. There's always at least some proportion who are reciprocal. Now, in different communities and different times and different circumstances, the proportions of the altruistic and the reciprocal and the spiteful and the completely selfish and so on vary. There are interesting things to be said about that. Interesting is that I don't think I've ever seen a single study that tries to tease out what kinds of 
social preferences, what kinds of preference configuration there are in a population that has ever come up with the with evidence to say that one of them has higher fitness than all of the others. They're all frequency dependent. And I think that's one of the most intriguing findings of all, that basically the returns to being either selfish or trusting or whatever are critically depend on what proportion of other types there are in the population. Well, and presumably trustworthiness is not genotypically coded, right? Presumably it's environmentally contingent. We, we can rapidly switch from being suspicious people to trusting people, reciprocal people to guarded people, depending on the, the environment in which we, we find ourselves, presumably. You spend a lot of time in the post-Soviet world, uh, and your, those experiences pop up from time to time in your writing. Can you talk maybe, how, how does the environment shape our propensities towards trust and trustworthiness? We know from other primates that behavior is extremely malleable with respect to circumstances. So, for example, it's pretty clear that the propensity for violence is much greater in chimps than it is in humans, other things equal. And Richard Wrangham has this wonderful recent book called The Goodness Paradox, which is all about what the process was by which the patterns of violence that we see in chimps were modified over time and how human beings came to show essentially much less emotional and reactive violence and much more cool-headed and strategic violence than chimps do. Now, why do I say that? I say that because even in chimps, who display much more emotional and uncontrollable violence than we do, we know that their propensity for aggression, for example, is highly dependent on fairly simple details of their foraging patterns. So, you know, if you get a group of four chimps comes across another group of five chimps on the boundaries of their respective territories, it's pretty likely that nothing is going to happen. But if you get four chimps meet a solitary individual, then the probability of aggression against that solitary individual is extremely high. And it seems that even if the chimps in some sense may be responding proximally to anger, aggression, various kinds of things that may be hormone-driven, all of that is strongly responding to environmental cues. Now, the same thing is surely true of us in the sense that we almost certainly have much less tendency to flare up. In, you know, somebody jostles us in a subway, most of the time we don't lash out. And when you get occasional bits of violence in a crowded subway, it's remarkable because of how unusual they are, in spite of the fact that people are jostling each other all the time. If you put chimps into a crowded space, then it would be a massacre very quickly. So we clearly have I would say, physiologically encoded capacities to manage the stresses of being in close confinement with other humans much better than others do. But our reactions are also highly environmentally dependent and dependent on things that are both the sort of subtle and often unconscious interpretation of cues we get from others, including, you know, do they piss us off? Do they make us angry? Do we not look at them in ways that we can't really give an impression of? or we can't give an explanation of, but also cognitive ways. And Brendan O'Flaherty had this uh, wonderful book called Shadows of Doubt, which is about stereotypes and criminal justice. And they talk about how an awful lot of violence is inflicted between people because of fears that others will be violent. So one of the reasons why having guns around is conducive to homicide is not that so to speak, you know, I have this uncontrollable urge to kill somebody and a gun is there and then I want to do it. It primes you towards vigilance. Yeah, it's that you have the gun and I'm terrified that if I don't shoot first, you'll get me first. And so cognitive processes are in there. It's not just uncontrollable emotions. So we're clearly picking up cues from our environment the whole time. And part of, I think, the wonder, the miracle of modern human society is that with lots and lots of false starts and big backward steps, we've managed to construct particularly urban environments in which a lot of those environmental cues are actually good at stabilizing violent impulses and, and not inflaming them. And that doesn't mean we don't have the violent impulses, but it means that we have put in place a whole sequence of environmental cues that tend to dampen them. But that also tells us that certain settings, which can often be exploited, for example, by political entrepreneurs or military entrepreneurs for their own interests, can then turn off those dampers and actually make the violent impulses flare up again. So, you know, if you want to encourage people in a pogrom against some minority, then there's now almost handbooks could be written about how you do it and what are the environmental cues you have to put in place so that not only will your troops 
be prepared to go in and kill the minority that you want to get rid of, but they'll also feel morally justified in doing so and self-righteously proud of what they've done and all of this kind of stuff, which again is about creating sets of environmental cues that take certain kinds of propensities and use them then for the political or military entrepreneur's purposes. Important, And it's important that we know who's trustworthy. It's important to develop the capacity to signal one's trustworthiness. You talk a bit about, in both books, you talk about costly signaling models. And uh, and you mentioned you know, laughing and, and smiling. And I think it's kind of similar to some stuff that Robert Frank is, was writing about. But what I find interesting is that these signals don't operate just at the individual level, but they operate at, say, the corporate level, right, through branding. How do we take those very simple kind of face-to-face signaling models and parlay them up into these larger institutional uh, signals? I, I think it's a really interesting question. And clearly, we carry around implicitly in our heads some pretty complex models of the way. So, you know, if you think of, and this has been happening a lot in the pandemic, there's a, somebody rings my doorbell and uh, I go down and I open the gate and it's somebody I've never seen before, some guy who's potentially quite violent. Do I open the gate just like that? No, I don't because the guy is wearing, I don't know, the Amazon uniform or the whatever. And what kicks in is a complex model. This guy could be wanting to, you know, rob your house and and you, and you just open the door to this person. It's kind of remarkable. Yeah. And again, we the inference process is lightning fast because if it's somebody wearing the uniform of Amazon or of some from which I buy a dishwasher, then I do it very quickly. If it's a uniform, but not one I've ever seen before, you know, I might stop and I would think, and then I would figure out, okay, what kind of company has that uniform? So there is implicitly a complex model in which I have the whole human resources department of that company in mind and thinking about what are their incentives to do background checks on people. And when you have innovations in corporate organization like Uber, then people start to ask themselves these questions. Okay, so I think lots of people hadn't asked themselves why it might be important that it was so difficult to get a taxi license until Uber came along and people realized that actually in a world in which it's much easier to become an Uber driver than to get a taxi license, there may be hidden dangers. And then, of course, people started to ask themselves questions. Uber itself started to implement new policies and to make a lot of fuss about how they do that. And so I often think that it's when you get an innovation in a corporate form that suddenly you realize that all of these inferences that were going in your head under the radar of consciousness have to be brought up into consciousness and inspected. So, I mean, I, I mentioned, I think, in the Company of Strangers, that this experiment that I have been doing for years now with students in which I just show them a picture of a, of a table in Africa with stuff on it. And I say, what's going on? And the students say, oh, yeah, it's obviously a market. And so I say, who's buying and who's selling? And they instantly tell me that it's the boy who's selling and the adults who are buying. And then I point out to them that statistically, even in Africa, it's unusual for the child to be selling. So what makes them so sure? And they eventually figure out painfully that it's because the adults are looking at what's on the table and the boy isn't. And the only person who can afford not to look at what's on the table is the person who put it there because he knows what the quality is. So it's clearly the adults who are looking at the produce. The boy doesn't have to because the boy is trying to figure out the adult's willingness to pay. What's interesting about that is that all of that inference is done in a twinkling of an eye. And the people who do it can't explain how they were so sure that it was the boy who was selling until we go through this process of explaining. And so I think similarly, when you go to your front door and there are some people you just are prepared to let in like that, we're going through a similar process of inference, which, I mean, it's part of what's fun about being an economics teacher, that you get these students who make these incredibly sophisticated inferences the whole time. And then you say to them, how do you know? And it takes them quite a long time to figure out. When we look at societies that are organized around, say, family firms or small communities, I think it's not that much of a stretch to see how those forms of social organization are extensions of what we had in forager society or a small-scale agricultural society. But when you when you move to these larger firms and these more complex markets, that's where it's kind of harder to see how these modules that we developed, cognitive modules, apply. In the US, and you talk about Alfred Chandler and, and how you know the birth of this large these large firms that are they're not family firms. You're inviting in outside investors who are more or less strangers. And then in today's world, we're not working at the same firm for our entire lifetime, but rather we're constantly firm hopping. It's harder to understand how these structures 
operate. And if it was all about carrots and sticks, it would be easier for us to understand. But as you say, that there's a quite a bit of trust that's sitting there as glue that's making the whole thing work. This step seems to be, we've had large states, for instance, like the Roman Empire for, for a long time, but this move to these large scale organizations and complex markets, this seems to be a dramatic leap for humanity. How did this happen? Okay, once again, the question of how it happened historically and what underpins it today are not the same question. Let me actually move ahead to what underpins it today. And if we have time, I'll come back to how it happened historically. One of the things I wish I had devoted more time to in the company of strangers, and actually will be an explicit theme in the book I'm working on now, is the importance of narratives in cementing trust in institutions. The example I gave just now, which was very much the kind of example I had in the back of my mind when I wrote The Company of Strangers, is all about how you can trust individual transactions. I transact, I buy a dishwasher, and then the person comes to the door of my house and offers to install the dishwasher, and I let them in, even though you know if they were ill-intentioned towards me, that could be fatal. So I've presented it in terms of how can we have enough trust to undertake a, a single transaction. But of course, a large part of people's lives are passed in a set of repeated interactions with institutions of various kinds. And I think that, again, when I was writing The Company of Strangers, I was probably still a bit too much in the under the influence of the game theoretic literature on repeated games, where, you know, in some sense, you, you just think of the fact of repetition as kind of cementing your ability to trust individuals because you're going to interact with them in the future. And as it happens, I think that's a very good parable for the process by which trust can get started in the early stages. So I think I mentioned in the book, but I've often used it as an example with students since. There's a, a great description by Herodotus of exchanges in the Libyan desert between Carthaginians and Libyans, where they engage in this silent trade, where they never actually talk to each other, but they put goods on the ground and they put gold and then they dance to and fro until the amount of goods is in the eyes of both sides equivalent to the amount of gold and then they go away with their own stuff. And the question you ask is why doesn't at some point one of the parties just grab everything and run? And the only plausible answer to that is that they realise that they'll never have an opportunity like this again if that's what they do. So the, this repeated game reasoning is very good at understanding how you would get something going that hadn't been going before. But I don't think it's very satisfactory for explaining why people would spend their lives working for General Motors or, or for that matter, for a political party or a government or, or something like that. And the growth of large enterprises in the late 19th century and the, and the 20th century was not, I think, explicable only in terms of economies of scale in production, although that is a big part of the story. But what you had to explain was how you would get people to be to essentially invest a lot of their sense of self-worth in this organization, which is a rather abstract thing. And there's lots of examples which have been much discussed by sociologists and not very much by economists about the way in which big firms tried to inculcate loyalty. So there's great stories of the way Ford, for example, would, in fact, the, uh, these examples have been cited very often at the famous melting pot at the Ford company headquarters in Dearborn, where people would arrive in their national costume and they would jump into the melting pot and they would come out dressed in American business suits uh, as a kind of parable for the way in which the firm was, was creating a common identity. Now, the big thing that we, I think, that we're in danger of losing from that was that what the firms often did, and sometimes it was almost below the level of consciousness, was to reproduce the narrative that many communities have created since time immemorial, which is that we look after you as a child, we send you out into the world to do battle with enemies and dragons, and and then you come back and you... This is a very masculine-based narrative, and but of course many of these firms were masculine redoubts that tried to win the authority, the loyalty of their, mass, of their male employees with this idea that you will go and struggle in your working life, but then we look after you afterwards. So we, you know, when you retire, you will never fully leave the company. You will belong to a community of former employees. You will get your pension and so on. And so there's this idea, which is common to all of the great the great epic uh, stories in ancient and modern literature, this idea that the individual is engaged in a kind of quest in their life, which is that as they grow out, they go and they do the dangerous stuff and they fight the battles, but then they're looked after. And there's this idea of the community 
welcomes people in afterwards. Now, there's obviously a whole set of questions as the 20th century wore on about where do women fit into the story? Because, you know, in the traditional conquering the dragon, killing the dragon, slaying the dragon myth, then, you know, the damsel is waiting for the hero and she just falls into his arms and says, yes, please. And she's not engaged in a similar kind of heroic myth or heroic narrative herself. And clearly something had to give in the way firms were organized, that they had to give a, a role to the working woman and not just say that it's the job of the woman to be there for when the man returns from his, his quest. But of course, then the other thing was when, when you realize that more and more there are demands from in modern life for people to be flexible, people who are going to be Uber drivers, Many of them want flexibility, but what flexibility doesn't deliver is a narrative about your place in the wider whole. You may, at your period in your young life, be thrilled to be an Uber driver because you can fit it in around looking after your kids or doing a second job or doing a more lucrative job, but which you can't do all the time. But I think Uber is great in lots of ways, but it doesn't offer people this kind of sense of belonging that those big firms used to. And of course, not only do big firms do that, but trade unions, particularly obviously in Europe more than in the US. And uh, you know, if you think about the language that the trade unions used, it was very much almost this military language. You know, what the class struggle is about is just like slaying the dragon. When you're young, you will fight on the barricades and you will advance the interests of your working brothers. And then, of course, the trade union looks after you later in life because it ensures that you have health benefits, you have the ability to be part of a community when you get older and when you're no longer have the physical strength to fight. And I do think that we've sort of lost the ability for organizations other than churches and political parties to provide this sort of narrative of fulfillment in life. And that leaves obviously the field wide open for all sorts of entrepreneurs to come in with more dangerous narratives saying, okay, now my political party will offer you the opportunity to achieve fulfillment through fighting. Now the dangers are immigrants or some other kind of scapegoatable population, and you will get your sense of fulfillment through taking part in the fight against them. So this has been rather lengthy, but what I mean to say is that I think in The Company of Strangers, I focus too much on what makes a transaction, what gives us enough trust for a transaction, and not enough on what creates the narrative under which we are willing to grant organizations, which are very abstract things, our loyalty. I treated loyalty as though it was something that we essentially give to people. But I think we give loyalty to very abstract organizations, and I'm still figuring out how we do that. Well, I think, I mean, sociologists and, and economists from Marx and Durkheim on have been saying that the market destroys these strong ties and replaces them with weak ties and eliminates this sense of, of belonging and replaces everything with the cash nexus. And I think, especially in today's world, where at least in Silicon Valley, the average life expectancy of an employee at a company is, you know, 14 months, it's kind of hard to develop a strong sense of belonging at Facebook when you're leaving Facebook after a year. But in a way, this replacement of strong ties with weak ties is, is part of the, the strength of the system. I think, you know, when you argue about tunnel vision and how tunnel vision is really the secret to the success of this very complex economic system that we have. Is there a way to, to have both? How do we leverage the weak ties and, and the strong ties? What kind of institutions can we lean on to, to bolster those strong ties? Because you mentioned churches. I think most people would say that churches are in, in decline pretty much everywhere. Absolutely not. No, they may, they've been in decline in Europe for some period of time. They're in decline in parts of the US, but in the world as a whole, churches are doing better than they've ever done before. Churches have been expanding in Africa and in Asia. Look at China, which where there are now, it's difficult to get reliable figures, but there are, by most plausible estimates, there are now more Christians in China, active Christians in China. They're members of the Communist Party. Churches globally are doing very well indeed. And so I don't think that there's a whole lot of a lot of things that can be said about the role that churches play in all this. But if I come back to the question of strong versus weak ties and, and markets, of course it's you're right that people from Marx and, and Durkheim and many others have talked about the way in which markets can undermine certain kinds of strong tie. But I think that until recently, the way in which that's been construed has been rather oversimplistic. It's been assumed by many people that markets encourage selfish behavior 
and that you need to have these strong ties in order to behave unselfishly. I think the evidence is now overwhelmingly against that. So, for example, one of the most fascinating studies published in the American Economic Review in the last half century was a study published in 2000, I think, or maybe in 2001 by a large team of people, including Joe Henrik and Rob Boyd and Sam Bowles and Herb Gintis and many others, looking at experiments testing for the presence of social preferences, including reciprocity, altruism, and so on, in a wide range of societies across the world. And what I think almost all the authors of the study expected was that they would find that the societies which had been most penetrated by market relations would be the ones where people were most selfish. And they found the exact opposite. They found that it was in the societies where people had become most used to market relations that actually people displayed the greatest spontaneous uh, generosity, altruism, but also reciprocity. Now, what does that mean? That means, I think, that market relations to work at all are and have to be profoundly moral, but in a rather limited sense of the word. Moral in the sense that, to a first approximation, and in spite of the presence of many charlatans and cheats and so on, when you go into a simple market transaction, by and large, you do what you say you're going to do. And, you know, if that weren't the default presumption, market relations wouldn't have been able to get going. And I think that's a remarkable fact, because as you point out, straightforward selfish calculation often suggests this wouldn't be a very smart thing to do. But it is what is the default mode for most people most of the time. I think the more sophisticated and concerned that people like Marx and Durkheim and Weber articulated was that the deeply moral relationship, which is a market relationship, is nevertheless based on acts and transactions and not really on a deep sense of belonging. In other words, I can treat you with respect, I can treat you with dignity because we're transacting, but in the end, at the end of the transaction, you go your way and I go mine, and we don't lose too much sleep over each other. Whereas it's part of belonging that People don't just drop off the edge of your universe. And that, I think, is the sort of deeper concern that in a market society, it's just too easy for people to drop off the edge of your universe and you never really know in the end who you can count on. Once again, that we shouldn't exaggerate that. My friend Sheila Ogilvy reminded me a couple of years ago that in medieval Europe, people were always dropping them off the edges of other people's universes because if you set out to travel from Augsburg to Vienna, the probability you wouldn't arrive at the end of your journey was really very high. I mean, you would get robbed, you would get murdered. You would... So actually, people were dropping off each other's the edges of each other's universes really rather often. And part of the achievement of societies like modern Europe and the United States is that by and large, when people set out, they get to their destination, which was not the case until relatively recently. But nevertheless, one of the things that we tried to do in those earlier, more violent societies was to create presumptions of belonging to what churches were very important in that, um, but so were families, so were various other kinds. I mean, all of those institutions that Robert Putnam described in Northern Italy and many others have been documented around the world were things that people were expected to continue belonging to. And that's the bit that we've not been good at reproducing, which is partly why actually churches do very well in the modern world. Because, you know, if your job takes you from a small town in rural Ohio to Denver, Colorado, or Los Angeles, or New York City, or or even to Columbus, I mean, you know, you, you suddenly don't necessarily know who your neighbors are. And uh, your church is often the place that provides you with the best substitute for the community you used to have. And so there you have something where the modern market economy is disrupting your original ties in your village or town of origin. And it's the church that is substituting for that in the big city to which you travel. One of the reasons why we see immigrant success is because when you enter a new country, you have an immediate marker, which kind of ropes off a group of people that you can presumably um, count on and trust to support you as distinct from the kind of pool of broad, undifferentiated population in which you find yourself. Including, paradoxically, people that you wouldn't touch with a barge pole if if it was back in your country of origin. But once you have to trust them, then you do. So I want to shift to the, we were talking about human exceptionalism and how we think about it in the 21st century. And I think 
When it comes to gender roles, I think we as humans, particularly in the 21st century, we believe that humans are, are different from all the other species and that our sex differences, gender differences are almost infinitely plastic. In your book, I think you kind of walk through a little bit of a richer story where you talk about how bargaining power between the sexes has evolved and it focuses, it's a story of scarcity and how in some species, the females are in a stronger bargaining position and others, the, the males, depending on what, what resource is scarce within that species. I wonder if you could just recap that that argument, and then we'll, we'll talk a bit about the workplace. Okay, so among the, the differences of our sexual and gender relations compared to that of other uh, animals is first that we are one of the rare species that does bidirectional signaling. So most other species, you either get the male will be the one with the gorgeously colored feathers, and the female will be dowdy, or the male will be the male nightingale will be singing the very elaborate song, and the female will be will be listening. And the reason for that is that, in a sense, females are scarcer than males, or to be more accurate, mating opportunities with females are scarcer than mating opportunities with males. And the scarcity determines that it's the males that display and the females that choose. Now, obviously, in some species, the females don't choose because what happens is that males fight it out, and it's the strongest male that then monopolizes the available females. And in human beings, we have this sort of very complex mixture of things where females do a lot of choosing, but females also do a lot of signaling. And the reason for that is that unlike in a lot of other species, what the females are looking for from the males is not just the DNA uh, or the sperm, if you like. It's they're, they're looking for quality, and quality means the willingness of the male to invest time, energy, resources, protection, whatever it may be, to enhance the ability of the female's offspring to survive and flourish. And so females display, males display, and in particular, the successful partnerships of females and males that are the ones that give the greatest fitness to the offspring are the ones in which the female and the male have some continued relationship. Now, many people have pointed out, for example, um, Sarah Hurdy has very importantly drawn attention to the fact, although she's far from alone in this, but she's very nicely expressed the important point that collaborative parenting, which is crucial to the human way of organizing things doesn't necessarily mean nuclear families and it doesn't you know the biological father doesn't have to be the person who collaborates with the mother to look after the child but the mother has to collaborate with somebody i mean it may be with her sisters it may be with her mother her aunts it may be with other males different societies have different kind of ways of organizing that but looking after a baby on your own is essentially impossible. I mean, it, it's possible in modern societies if you have a welfare state and stuff like that, but in, in no functioning human society do mothers ever look after their offspring completely alone. They always have help, and then the question is, how can we best organise that help? And that's very, very unusual, because, you know, mother chimp, essentially, she gets the sperm from the father, and that's it. And the same is true of very large numbers of animals. There are some fascinating exceptions. Birds are one, for the obvious reason that once the egg is laid, the mother can't go and forage because she leaves the egg unprotected. Whereas a mother chimp can take the baby chimp and go and forage. Eggs really change the equation because eggs require males to take part. And there are some primates, so marmosets are a fascinating example in which the males give a lot of protection and food. And fascinatingly, primatologists can tell when a female marmoset is pregnant more easily by observing the male putting on fat than by observing changes in the female, because the male gets ready when the female of whom is a social partner becomes pregnant to then devote energy and care to the infant. But so although there are exceptions, marmosets being one, many birds being another, where you've got a lot of paternal care, humans are pretty far off the charts in that. And that determined... Now, because that's a complex collaborative relationship, like all complex collaborative relationships, it has a gazillion ways to go wrong. And so all of the richness of kind of modern literature is, is about the ways it goes wrong and, and the way in which we think about how to manage gender relations in the modern world where, you know, although there's been some pushback in recent years on, on the idea of man the hunter, of men always doing hunting, it was still, I think, broadly accepted that in many societies, the bulk if not the totality of calories from hunting were found by males. But of course, we don't live in a hunting society anymore. And most kinds of modern work are much more like gathering than they are like hunting. So there's every reason why men and women can collaborate in that process. But we haven't 
quite figured out what are the best ways to collaborate along the multiple dimensions of say collaborating in a modern firm and collaborating in a in a modern family so one of the things you know about families is that kids can fall sick at any time so there has to be some set of understandings among the people looking after the kid as to what's the default rule when the kid falls sick who's responsibility is it. Unfortunately, lots of modern firms are like families in the sense that they're complicated structures of tasks. And when something goes wrong, somebody has to, there has to be a set of rules as to who, when there's a fire breaks out in the factory or when there's uh, some disaster goes wrong in the in the office, who's going to take care of that? And I, th- I think there's no simple answer to how you combine the web of responsibilities in a family with the web of responsibilities in a firm, given that every person is going to be a member of more than one of these networks. So I think it's not surprising that there's, in a sense, that there are no perfect solutions. But what's to me amazing, and I mean, I do talk a lot in the book about how strange it is in some ways that we see so little difference between men and women in almost all of the competences that you could think of, the cognitive competences and so on. There are some slight things that men do better than women and some things that women do better than men. But overall, it's just astonishing how kind of omnicompetent men and women are because in almost all other animals, there are huge differences between the the sexes in terms of how they function. And what's really amazing in human beings is how few those differences are and how trivial they are. And essentially all men and all women are, by the standards of everything else we know in the natural world, just spectacularly competent multitaskers. And, you know, a lot of this pseudoscience about do men or women do multitasking better is just speculation, because the dominant fact is that we all multitask so much better than any other animal known to us in nature. So males and females can be equally competent in in most domains, but the importance of signaling could differ, right? One of the things you point out is how much wasteful effort and energy goes into this signaling. And then you offer a hypothetical. I don't think you spell up. What if the the peacock could simply just show a little 23andMe, you know, app and say, look, man, I'm the one with the good genes. Then we wouldn't have to waste any time with the display or anything like that. All this waste could disappear. We could just credibly signal our quality. Yeah, I mean, the problem is figuring out a signal that, that would work because it may be true that, for example, a lot of sexual attraction is about is your body telling you that it has figured out that the genes of the person that you're looking at are high quality genes. But I mean, it's still the case that we don't feel turned on by somebody's genes. I mean, we feel t- turned on by the proxies that have come to stand in for those the quality of those genes. And sexual desire retains its deeply mysterious quality. And, and by the way, I think there's something subversive about, and it makes it very really difficult to write about sexual desire in a context where you're trying at the same time to be sort of politically sensitive, because the whole point about political sensitivity is that you want to treat different people in a just way. You don't want to arbitrarily make distinctions between people. You don't want to discriminate and so on. And yet the fact is that sexual desire is intensely discriminating. I mean, it's just, you know, you feel sexual desire for X and not for Y. And you may feel sexual desire for X today, but not next week. And and these are things you can't explain because even if there was a rationale in natural selection for why you have that ability to get drawn to certain characteristics, when, you know, it, it's still, that's the explanation for how you got there, but it's not an account of what it is that you feel desire for today. And so I think that this part of what's difficult politically about managing sex and gender in the workplace is that at the heart of it, there there are these desires that are not easily, you know, we can't just tell ourselves, oh, you know, I I should feel the same kind of desire for everybody, old, young, beautiful, not beautiful, dark, light, talented, untalented, you know, you, all of the things we try to do politically of treating people fairly and in non-discriminatory ways tend to get overturned by the sheer unpredictability of sexual desire. And obviously, there's one solution to that, which is people say, okay, we basically banish sex from the workplace completely. We treat it, we Essentially, we know it's a fiction, but it's a necessary fiction. We have to assume that everybody behaves as though their sexual existence was completely irrelevant to the work they do. And that works up to a point. But then, you know, people meet in workplaces and they 
become attracted to each other and they start relationships and you know you then can't separate these things out anymore and that's really tough and i just you know we there are obviously very bad ways that goes wrong including harassment in the workplace and and so on but there're also no perfect ways to deal with it either because if you try to for example say there should never be sexual relationships in the workplace and with the all of the partiality that gives rise to then you condemn people to finding it difficult to find partners when it's the people they work with the, the people they spend most of their time with well even if people treated each other in the workplace in a sort of gender neutral way i'm not sure that would really uh, affect the distribution of representation in the different tiers right you point out the percentage of women in senior positions is quite low in organizations you know of all kinds and why wouldn't we just look at that and say well that's like the peacock's tail right i mean we have we don't say that the male and female peacocks have unequal tails we say they have different tails why couldn't we just say that this is as long as women are attracted to ceos instead of janitors we're going to have higher representation of males among ceos because they're going to invest people are going to males are going to invest more resources in achieving those those large tails at the expense of many other things including health and life expectancy and other sorts of bad outcomes Yeah no that's it. that's exactly right and indeed in the last chapter of the book one of the things that, that I mean I I'm always I'm very uncomfortable about a lot of what is written about unequal representation because I personally can't imagine in any conceivable universe wanting to be a CEO of a large company to me it's just a crazy thing to want to do <laughs> it, you know, to me it's not a life okay so when women friends of mine say they don't want to do that either i think good on you how sensible at the same time i'm troubled by the fact that there are only 8% of ceos and the top ceos in the us are are women it was when i wrote the book it was 2.5% so it's moved on a bit but do i really think that the ideal world is one in which it's 50-50 depends on how you put the question do i think women would be happiest if 50% of them were able to be ceos no i don't think they do because i suspect that more women than men for the reasons why you suggest will tend to think that being ceo is not really worth the extraordinary exhaustion humiliation overwork that the job requires what do i think is the real cost of that the real cost of that is that so many firms which create the job of ceo in such a way that it's almost performable except by somebody with almost outrageously eccentric tastes and for narcissistic display overwork craving for attention and so on it's the firms that create the job of ceo in some sense to make it unperformable by everybody except that which in the process deny themselves this extraordinary pool of female talent among women who just don't want to do that kind of job and you know so i quite a lot on why female executives are paid less than male executives and you know i really have to emphasize that i'm not losing sleep over the fact that very privileged women are slightly less privileged than even more privileged men i'm losing sleep over the fact that these companies are not using female talent because of the way in which they structure their governance so that the job of ceo is almost impossible to undertake except by people with a very peculiar set of characteristics you mentioned the importance of narratives and you mentioned that the the only hero narratives that we have in our society are ones that are really traditionally male hero narratives you know rather than inventing a, a different set of of narratives have we not said to women hey here's the template you need to switch over to this template rather than creating a new template or a new set of of stories that would be more compatible with what gives females fulfillment and uh, is in more in alignment with their preferences and motivations Well, I mean this is a great question and I think is a tough one to answer. I mean there is a set of theories that says that storytelling was an essentially male activity for a very large part of human prehistory and history because it was like a peacock's tail that essentially to put it crudely men told stories in order to get laid and that women didn't need to tell stories or at least they didn't need to tell that kind of story. although they would be telling stories to their children and maybe to their sisters and so on they would be telling a different sort of story which is a story that's more about it's not about 
heroic qualities. It's about, in the case of children, it's about teaching the children to master their fears, which, as we know, some children's stories are terrifying. But they're terrifying in a controlled way. They're terrifying in order to, for the, the child and the mother, in some sense, to work through a set of fears together. So I think that there's a lot of things to be said about why, where these hero narratives come from. They, it's not accidental that they were told by men, and they were told by men in a way that, that gave heroic roles to men and didn't give heroic roles to, to women. Now, why can't our narrative conventions evolve? Well, they can. But again, the question is going to be who gets rewarded for telling the narratives that we will find newly rewarding. And, you know, we've seen, obviously, in recent years, enormous changes in the makeup of who writes fiction, who uh, makes movies, who... These are industries like other industries. And for some of the same reasons that CEOs remain overwhelmingly male, which is not because the job itself can't be done by women, but because the way we've structured it, many women don't find the job attractive. And so, for example, if you take the creative industries, many ways in which, say, movie studios have been organized until relatively recently have been ones in which it was very hard for women to do the job in a way that they found was rewarding because of the way in which the whole thing was structured. So that narratives that are central to our culture, including, you know, all the Disney narratives that kids grow up with, have been made by males in exactly the same way as the hero narratives of the ancient Greeks and the Persians and so on were, were also told by males. So I think there's just a vast amount of cultural unpicking to be done. Now, it's happening partly. I mean, you know, more and more women are, are making movies and Interestingly, I think they're making often different kinds of movies. Now, there's obviously overlap. There are a lot of women who make movies like what most men make, and there are a lot of men who make movies like what most women make. But I still think that the corpus of movies made by women is interestingly different overall from the corpus made by men, and those differences are worth exploring. The goal of, of I think, a, a progressive creative industry should not be for women to make the same kind of movies that men have always been making, because the kinds of movies that men have been making are part of the problem with the wider culture. And one thing you mentioned is that women tend to have more strong ties and men have more, more weak ties. And that in the kinds of marketplaces that we're operating now, it's really helpful to have these weak ties. And I think there has been some ways that some interventions that have been done to kind of help develop these weak ties. I, I know the American Economics Association did an experiment where they were, you know, created a, a group of women economists who would forge weak ties with each other and their careers were advanced much more quickly than people who were not put into this treatment group. So perhaps we, encouraging more weak ties for women in the workplace or maybe figuring out ways to make strong ties more, uh, more powerful could redress some of this, some of this imbalance. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. And, and, you know, let's not underestimate some of the benefits of technology. Everybody says, oh, you, you have to have personal context to get jobs and so on. But electronic networks and social networks and so on are can substitute for some of the things that the old, purely human relational based networks could do. Now, that's not to say that there won't be differences between the way in which men use those networks and women use those networks. And I emphatically don't believe that the, in a sense, our problems of gender in the workplace will have been solved once there is no statistical distinction between the kinds of work that men do and the kinds of work that women do. Because I do think there will continue to be differences in preferences. I'm not saying they're hardwired. I mean, those differences in preferences come from a whole complex set of, of considerations, which are cultural and historic. And there are, without doubt, some more kind of physical and physiological contributions to differences in the way in which men and women work. But a large part of that is cultural. I don't think it's particularly interesting or, or illuminating to try and figure out what is the exact contribution of those different parts. But the main point is that women should be free to do the kind of work that they're best fulfilled at. And if it turns out that they choose differently from what men choose, that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the, the last thing we want to do is to create conditions in which women feel obliged to work the same kind of jobs that men have always been done for fear of letting down their sisters or 
make the same kind of movies that male directors have always made for fear of being thought somehow not up to the artificial standards that male movie directors have created. So, I mean, at the end of the book, I do say that actually, in some sense, feminism shouldn't just be about creating better fulfillment for women. It should be about creating better fulfillment for men. I mean, why do so many men spend so much time in their offices and see so little of their kids? That's one of the reasons why I could never imagine doing certain kinds of jobs. I was too attached to see my kids. And I think the rules of the workplace that oblige men to put in long hours at the expense of seeing their families were as, at least as damaging to men as to women. And the damage done by those rules of wasteful signaling in the workplace fall at least as badly on men as on women. And so I think I think sort of feminism is about liberating all genders. There's much more richness in the book and in your other writing, and I look forward to your next book. Last question. You head up a, something called the Institute for Advanced Studies, Toulouse. A lot of people talk about interdisciplinarity and talk about exposing themselves to people outside of their main discipline, but the kind of you know rat race and the uh, competitive signaling that, that takes place within your discipline oftentimes makes it difficult. How can we as educational institutions encourage more exposure to thoughts outside of our main discipline? How does the Institute for Advanced Studies do this? And is it a role model? Is it something that other universities can follow? Well, I mean, I, I would hate to say we are better role I mean, there are other role models and places that we ourselves have been inspired by. So I, I wouldn't want to exaggerate our own pioneering work. I think pioneering work is happening all over the world and many, many places are thinking about this. One paradox is that big American firms went through, and as any management course will tell you, went through a revolution in the early 20th century from a form in which they were structured by functions so that the main departments would be sort of the production department, and then there would be the marketing department, and then there would be the after-sales service department, and so on. And they went through this, uh, they moved from this unitary form, as it was described, to to a multi-divisional form in which, you know, there would be the mid-sized cars and the big cars and the small cars, or there would be the paints division and the fertilizer division and the pharmaceuticals division and so on of the big chemical firm. And the important point about that was that work was structured around tasks to be done rather than professional skills that were required for doing them. And so the genius of people like Sloan, who ran General Motors, were was to realize that the people who needed to talk to each other in a firm were those who were engaged in the same task, not the people who had done the same professional training together. If a salesperson is going out to sell a Chevrolet out in the Midwest somewhere and meets uh, customers saying, sorry, your Chevrolet's brakes are no good, they're not reliable. When the salesperson goes back to HQ, the person they should be talking to is not other salespeople. Uh, with whom they would just sell sort of ways of trying to divert the customer's attention from the brakes to think about other stuff. They need to be talking to the production people and saying, you know, guys, your brakes are no good. I'm having a hard time selling your car because, and you've got to fix those brakes. So that was Sloan's genius, that the people who had to talk to each other are the people who engaged in a collective task, not the people who share the same, as it were, disciplinary skill. Now, universities are a century behind big American firms. We're still organized by disciplinary, shared disciplinary competence, and not mostly by research task, research problem. And so I think that the the challenge is, I mean, there are reasons for that. It's not an accident that production firms like General Motors or DuPont got into the reorganization on multi-divisional lines so much earlier than universities did. And we can go into what some of those reasons are. But the point is, universities have been very slow to think about the benefits of organizing people around problems rather than around disciplinary skills, partly because the disciplinary skills take many years to acquire and, and so on. But there's still something a bit dysfunctional about having the people who share the disciplinary skills talking to each other rather than the people who are working on a problem, say climate change or political cohesion or underdevelopment or, or whatever. And of course, more and more universities are trying to, and not just universities, but other think tanks and so on, are trying to organize people around problems like climate change and underdevelopment and uh, disease. Actually, COVID-19 has been very good for multidisciplinary research. And what I think is necessary is to try to ensure that recruitment within disciplinary departments internalizes the benefits for the solving of problems of getting people who are used to thinking in terms of a problem-solving way approach to their work rather than just a 
I have shiny disciplinary tools. And so let me mention a number of things which I think are, are encouraging in this respect. So, you know, when I started out as a graduate student nearly 40 years ago, I getting published was, first of all, fairly easy, but also lots of people who published in journals were not doing work that was, say, statistically always very competent. And so much of the work that referees did in journals, for example, was just weeding out the statistically incompetent material. Nowadays, I think researchers are so much better trained that the overwhelming majority of papers that are submitted to journals are statistically extremely competent. A lot of them are very uninteresting, but they're statistically entirely competent. And what that means is that more and more, the job of good referees and editors is not, you know, weeding out the person who can't calculate their standard errors correctly. It's about finding the paper that has really framed the problem in an interesting way and told a story. We talked about narrative at the beginning of this podcast, and I come back again and again to the fact that narratives infuse many of the things we do, even when we're being most scientific. So good research papers often tell a convincing story about what's going on, uh, which obviously has to be backed up with completely sound statistics. But the completely sound statistics are only the first part of the project. What you also have to have is putting the statistical findings into a context in which people say, yes, that answers a question in a convincing way with a mechanism we can believe in, we can tell a story around, that answers a question we care about. And so my feeling is that it's actually going to become easier in the future for people who have done interdisciplinary research to publish even in the disciplinary journals. Because to put it bluntly, the disciplinary journals now have an excess of disciplinarily competent submissions. And the things that the factors that make the difference between the ones they want really want to publish and the ones they don't are the ones that just have some of that imagination and which tie all of the hard disciplinary work to answering a really interesting question. And you can't answer a really interesting question unless you've thought about the broader interdisciplinary context into which it fits. Now, of course, it's much harder to admit PhD students based on their imagination as opposed to their technical competence. You know, it's hard to predict what's going to, who's going to be the, the creative person 10 years later. Tell us about the book. When is the book coming out and what's the topic next book? Okay, so the next book is going to be called The Origins of Enchantment, How Religions Compete. It's not written yet, although I've done quite a lot of the research for it, and I have a sabbatical next year when I step down from starting in September when I step down from being director of IST, and I plan to finish the manuscript during my sabbatical year, and it's under contract to Princeton, who published both of the other books. So I really hope, and believe me, Princeton really hopes they're thinking that this uh, book was some kind of millenarian promise which was never going to come true. And I think they'll be at least as relieved as I am when uh, the manuscript is eventually done. Paul, thanks so much for joining today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And thank you for asking those questions, which in many ways made me think about these issues in ways I hadn't thought before. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.